Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Robin Mitchell, the author of Venus Noire, Black Women and Colonial Fantasies in 19th Century France. And the book was published by the University of Georgia Press in 2020. Hi there, Robin. Hey, Roxanne. I am so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm nervous. You don't need to be nervous. This is going to be great. So, Robin, before we get talking about the book, apart from this year, 2020 being when this wonderful thing has emerged in the world, it's been a lot this year. How are you doing? Um, It has been a lot this year. The book came out in January and February. We started getting weird rumblings. And by March, we were shut down. So been in the house for a long time this year. It's, it's been, it's been a little bit tough. And having a book come out in the midst of all of this. I mean, I know cause listeners, Rob and I follow each other on Twitter. We've met once in person, I think. And, uh, so I know, you know, people have been talking about the book, reading the book, signing it in classes. There's certainly been a lot of uh, discussion around the book, but it is strange or it must be strange to have a book come out when everybody's kind of staying close to home and under so much stress? You know, it's kind of interesting because I've never had a book. So I don't know sort of the right way a book is supposed to come out. (laughs) The book came out, people saw the image on the cover. And I have to say, it's one of the most beautiful covers I've ever seen. Same. But people saw the cover and went kind of crazy over it. And so folks got excited really quickly I think I owe whatever success this book has at this point to Twitter. Twitter just really came through for me. (laughs) And then when they started talking about assigning it, I said, well, if you sign the book, invite me, I'll come in and talk to your class. And that sort of snowballed. So this year, even though I have been sort of sequestered at home, I think I've done close to 25 classes and a number of talks. So I feel like I'm just as busy as I would be in normal circumstances the difference being I'm not going to an airport every five minutes. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I've been exhausted just watching how many <laughs> um, <laughs> interviews and uh, class 
you know, meetings and presentations and things that you've been doing. And I mean, all those lucky students and, and profs out there for sure, it, and interviewers, including me. It's been wonderful. Students have been incredible. You know, I don't know what other authors think when they write a book, but literally I thought three people were going to buy the book and two of them were <laughs> going to be my parents. And so the fact that people are actually reading it and want to talk about it um, is absolutely astonishing to me. And a couple of times people have said, you know, on page 25, you said, and they start reading my words back to me, which is, yeah, <laughs> um, I highly recommend that. Um, but it's also <laughs> sort of terrifying to have people read words back to you. But I've been just so touched and so humbled by the reception of the book. Well, it's just a fantastic book. So it's not just the beautiful cover, yes, and the wonders of, of good Twitter. We know about bad Twitter, but good Twitter. Yes, we do. But it's also, you know, everything that this book holds. And I'm, I'm just so excited to be able to talk to you about it. Before we, we do talk about more about the book, can you tell our listeners a little bit more, Robin, about how you got interested in working on France and French colonialism? Sure. Well, when I was a kid, and that was um, a long, long, long time ago, <laughs> um, my mother used to read to us Harlem Renaissance writers. I think mm. I was about five. I was really young. And she would read Langston Hughes, and she would read their, their short stories. And because we weren't getting African American history at, you know, at school, and she mm. really thought she needed to fill in that hole. And she would make all the voices and she would talk about all these writers. And sort of in this conspiratorial tone, she'd say, he went to Paris. And so from a very young age, I thought if you were a black person, and you were interested in writing, you needed to go to Paris. Hmm. So that's how it actually started. My mother loved everything French, even though she didn't get to see France until, thank God, a number of years before she passed away. Mm. She finally came to visit me. But when I went to school, I would say things like, oh, you know, there are Black people in Paris. And, and my teachers sort of looked at me like, mm, no, there aren't. And honestly, <laughs> part of this came from trying to prove my mother right. I knew my mother wasn't lying. And so part of looking at Black people in France was a way of saying my mother hadn't actually lied. And then I fell in love with it on my own from there. So in terms of getting to this book, I know that, Robin, you had a kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, a typical trajectory uh, in terms of your education and going to graduate school and coming to all of this. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Um, actually, it was completely backward my education. Hmm. I went to college when I was 17. I flunked out when I was 18. I think I had a 0.25 GPA. And somebody from the university that I was at at the time wrote, you know, not everyone is college material. And I believe that for 18 years, it took me hmm. 18 years to get up enough courage to go back to college. I was 32 when I went wow. back to college. So if you look at my CV, and of course that helped me when I got a job, if you look at my CV, it looks like I did everything at the same time. But basically by the time I got to college, I was 32. I graduated from Mills College when I was 35. And then everything else was sort of traditional. I went right into a, a PhD program that ended up being a master's program um, at UC Santa Cruz. And then Tyler Stovall, who was my advisor at the time, moved to Berkeley and brought me with him. And so when I got to Berkeley, of course, being Berkeley, they said, well, you know, you have to start over again. So 
I started the program completely over again. So for me, it was really sort of backward how I did it. And I'm really grateful for that because I think I was a psych major when I was 17. And, you know, really? Um, So (laughs) (laughs) I had absolutely no business being a psych major. So when I went back to school at 32, I thought, well, I'm paying for this. I can do whatever I want. So I majored in ethnic studies with a concentration in 19th century African-American literature and ended up doing my thesis, you know, my capstone on uh, Black writers in Paris between the two world wars. And then you went on to choose the, the stories of these three amazing women that you write about in this book. How did you come to them? Well, uh, one of my professors at Mills invited Tyler Stovall to come talk. And, you know, of course, part of that was to talk to me. And, you know, we hit it off. We, you know, he writes on Black people in France. Very exciting. You know, I thought he was a genius. His first book, you know, sort of convinced me I wasn't crazy. Mm. Um, and so it was really important. So when I went to Santa Cruz, I thought I was going to study something that I called the Josephine Baker myth Hmm. is that I was interested in why for so many white French people, their only racial marker was Josephine Baker, you know, that they couldn't sort of conceptualize (laughs) black French people, but they could, they could conceptualize this black American. So I thought, you know, that's an interesting question. And uh, dynamic that I sort of want to understand more about. And then I was reading a biography of Josephine Baker by her son. And he tells this story about everyone rehearsing for, you know, what would become this global phenomenon with Josephine Baker doing this banana dance. And so they had invited in a French producer to look at the last rehearsal. And so I was sort of interested in this notion of this French producer uh, producing this American to sort of represent Africa hmm. and what that dynamic looked like. And the producer, they show, you know, they show the rehearsal and they, they look at the producer and he says, you know, we need tits. He says, these, these French people with their fantasies of black women, we have to show them the tits. And that changed the entire trajectory of my research because hmm. I thought, what fantasies, like what fantasies do French people have of black women? And after that, I thought, well, I wonder if there's something that helps us make more sense out of why Josephine Baker becomes so famous. And yes, there are lots of someones that help sort of explain that. So I started sort of looking around that area. There were, um, there were one or two other Black women that were really famous. And then I just sort of started moving backward. Hmm. And that led me to Sarah Bartman. And once I found Sarah Bartman, um, I'm sorry to say, Josephine Baker um, went away. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to spoil the preface of the book for people, Robin, uh, listeners, just, just get the book, read the book. <laughs> um, it's amazing. But I do want to talk about the moment that you describe. I mean, when I read it, I find it so powerful, so moving. Um, when you talk about the moment of, you know, going to do research in, in France and in Paris and encountering um, in a certain way, Sarah Bartman, this powerful moment when you began the research for this project. And I, I just want to linger on it for a second, uh, what that moment meant for you, how much you want to tell us about it without giving away too much of what's in the preface or kind of spoiling that for people who should enjoy reading those pages. It sets a tone for the rest of the book. Could you say a little bit about that? Oh, thank you. Um, I It was important to me that I tell that story. Basically, I wanted to sort of show my own ineptness <laughs> as mm. well. 
in terms of what it's like to sort of go to a place that you don't know very well and, you know, start your research. It's really a little bit overwhelming. And Mm. I sat at home in my apartment for, I think, a week or so, just like terrified to go to the archives. (laughs) And finally, I got the courage and I thought, I'm going, I'm going to the Museum of Man and no one can stop me. And so I went, you know, without an appointment and, you know, sort of asked to see her, knowing that her body her skeleton, her genitalia, and her brain had been repatriated to South Africa. So I went to see sort of the accoutrement of Bartman that the museum had kept. Mm. And, you know, honestly, I don't know if I will ever have another moment that profound. Mm. Um, Sort of being near things that I know that she touched, sitting next to them. She felt very, very present to me in that moment. Mm. And it was a profound moment for me, but it was also really important because as a black scholar studying black women, I knew there would be people that sort of didn't take me seriously because, you know, there's a feeling that I couldn't be objective, Mm. although we don't think that about white people. We think they're always being objective. (laughs) Um, But I knew that that it was something I needed to sort of deal with. And so what I I was trying to do um, was not only sort of, talk about my own vulnerability, but also talk about the fact that the history that we often do is heartbreaking. It's, ter- it's, it's terrible. And, and the fact that that readers think we could do that and not be affected by it seemed to me to be really disingenuous. I, I couldn't do that. And so mm-hmm. the, the women that I, I study um, are real people. And I never wanted anybody to lose sight of that. So, Robin, this book deals with these representations and figures of Black women and the colonial imaginary, the French colonial imaginary. And you're looking at literary and visual depictions of Black women and these kind of cultural discourses about Frenchness that shaped the country's, I'm sort of cribbing from you a little bit here, (laughs) country's uh, post-revolutionary national identity. And you also connect the representations of the three women that that you focus on in the book, Sarah Bartman, Ulrika, and Jeanne Duval. You connect their stories and the representations of them to the history of colonialism and slavery, to the histories of the French and Haitian revolutions. Could you talk a little bit about how the book is in some way a history of, of slavery? Um, It's both a history of slavery and it's a history of Frenchness. Mm. Uh, One of the things I wanted to look at, I did my master's thesis on Sarah Bartman. So part of my master's thesis was sort of looking at all the images around her, looking at the discourses around her and trying to make sense out of it. And I think what shifted with the book was it wasn't just looking at representation. It was looking at production. Mm you know, there's a willfulness in some of the productions of Blackness here. Mm. And so I made a decision to start out with the biographies. Even Mm. though people had written biographies, I wanted to have an anchor for the reader to say, look, these women were spectacles or um, scandalous in different kinds of ways, but they they were integrated in different ways in France. People knew about them. People interacted with them. Any student of France you know, as they're getting ready to take their French, French exam and they're like, republic, empire, monarchy, 
empire, republic, trying to figure out sort of what France does politically through the early to mid 19th century. One of the constants during all of those changes was slavery. Mm. And so I wanted to sort of juxtapose that sort of constant with all of these sort of changing political moments where white Frenchmen and women were trying to figure out who am I today? You know, yesterday we had a republic and now, you know, Napoleon's decided he's an emperor. So now I go back to being a subject. And, you know, that that had to have a sort of schizophrenic impact on the population. And if you lay the Haitian revolution on top of that, Mm -hmm. you see something I thought very specific, a real dedication to understanding what their national, what French national identity was during all of these moments but also to see how much of it was predicated on whiteness. Yeah, and you use this language that's provocative and really effective, I think, that, you know, Haiti haunted France and Frenchness throughout the 19th and then even into the the 20th century. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Well, you know, I, I, I came across, of course, Jeremy Popkin's book on eyewitnesses to the Haitian Revolution, Mm -hmm. where all these white French men and women were talking about these black barbarians and all of the terrible things that were sort of that happened to them, which was an interesting way of sort of erasing what they did Mm. in Haiti. What you have during this revolution are, you know, white French men and women who are about to lose everything, fleeing this island, coming back to France. And then, um, At a certain point, it becomes relatively clear that the French government is not going to sort of give them um, reparations. And so I was reading Daryl Meadows's dissertation, and he was talking about this idea that those folks started um, not only sort of sequestering themselves from other white French men and women, but also using more and more sort of racist terminology to Mm. talk about what had happened in the island. And so, you know, you have Napoleon on the one hand, who is, you know, at the peak of his powers, um, who loses their number one colony. And all of a sudden, France is like, well, we didn't really want it anyway. And I thought, well, yeah, you did. um, (laughs) Because you talk about it for the entire 19th century. Mm. You know, how do you mitigate going from losing, you know, uh, tens of thousands of men on the island to, yeah, we didn't really want it anyway, is a trauma. Mm -hmm. How do you talk about your own racial and sort of military superiority when basically you just got your ass kicked (laughs) by slaves, right? And if you talk about your own racial superiority versus Black men, well, they just beat you. And to say that is not to suggest for a moment that women, black women weren't fighting. What Mm -hmm. I'm saying is, is that we often sort of understand revolution and military and sort of male space. Mm -hmm. And so how then do you still talk about your own racial superiority? Um, How do you talk about who you are and what you're going to be now? in a way that still allows you to retain a self, a sense of self. Mm-hmm. And to me, it seemed that they were putting that trauma on a body that they thought was safer. And in this mm-hmm. case, I thought they thought a black female body would be safer. They're wrong. But at the time, I think that's what they thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about the book and the way that you analyze the production around these three women is that you really do point to the specificity of the Black female body as the body 
that allows uh, these different voices trying to figure out Frenchness in this period to bring together ideas about citizenship, nationhood, race, and gender, and sexuality in a very particular way. That's exactly right. And so you have, you know, this very strange kind of racial ventriloquism where people Mm. are sort of putting a Black female face in front of them, you know, hiding behind it and having all of these conversations that either they're too afraid or um, too intelligent to have coming out of their own mouth. It's a little bit easier when it is supposedly this sort of debased Black female. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about these uh, three women. You do start the book with what is known, what we know about them, the, the, the biographies. Sarah Bartman, you know, we've already talked about a little bit where, how you came to Sarah Bartman, but Ulrika and Jeanne Duval, you know, how they, how they came to be the other two women that you're looking at in the book. And what made you decide to put these three together? Well, it was really interesting because, you know, I had been working um, with Sarah Bartman for a long time by the time the other two women came to me. And, you know, just in doing searches on Blackness and Black womanhood, you know, through the archives, it's always interesting what pops up since, you know, the French don't record race. Mm. And so, you know, doing my searches and trying to figure out in what ways I thought Black women might be visible, I came across the novel Urica by uh, the Duchess de Dura. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody had written, it was the first time you hear sort of a Black girl speak. So it's the first Black protagonist in French literature. Mm. And so I became really interested in that, not knowing that she was an actual person. Mm. And so once I read the novel and started doing work on that, realized she was a little girl brought over from Senegal when she was about three years old, basically as a house pet. Um, She's a present for a French noble family from the governor of Senegal. And so doing, starting to do that research and getting her confused, like a lot of other writers had with these other black children coming over, you know, indicates that there are multiple black children coming over. And so I became interested in her because there was, you know, honestly, because there was really good paperwork, you know, I could Mm. sort of find out things about her. And then after that, I came across this weird moment between like 1823 and 24 ends early in 25 that I subsequently dubbed Orica mania, Mm. where people just could not get enough of this little girl. Um, but the thing was, is it had really nothing to do with her. Mm-hmm. So they took the novel and sort of started turning into plays and they started turning it into colors and to um, clothing. They turned it into food. It's a weird kind of um, psychological consumerism. Mm-hmm. And so once I found that, I thought, okay, this is, this is something that I can do that's not just sort of looking at the novel. Um, The novel is so problematic, but if you look at the plays and the poetry that comes after, they're equally problematic. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of them are just absolutely terrible. But the basic premise is, is that this Black girl is sort of raised as a house pet in a French noble home. She falls in love with her adopted brother. Um, She can't marry him because she's Black. He falls in love with an appropriate white female. They get married. She becomes sad 
and then melancholy, and then she dies. She Mm -hmm. goes to a nunnery and she dies. And the one thing that I saw with all of the work on Orca and all these plays and poetry is this notion that since no one knows what to do with her, Mm -hmm. she sort of has to die. Like Mm -hmm. my friends would say to me, you know, is she dead yet? And I'm like, no, but it's coming. Um, So she dies in the novel. And then in the plays, she either dies of sadness or she's, she goes back to her country. Mm -hmm. And, but they put it like she goes back home. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, she's been here since she's three. You've raised her in a noble home. You talk about her sort of nobility, but what we see is when she doesn't get her way, she reverts back to this sort of Africanness. Mm-hmm. So when she tells her brother that she's in love with him and he sort of, you know, says what she offers him, you know, sex with herself and a hundred other black women, you know, because she knows a hundred other black women. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's bizarre, but it's a way of sort of saying that the nobility that she possesses is not inherent. Mm-hmm. It's something that she's been sort of trained to do and it falls away, you know, at the first time it's sort of challenged. And so I was interested in this idea that nothing she could do made her French, mm-hmm. that even in her own mind, she had to leave there because it wasn't her home. I think Robin of the three, I mean, this is true for me, and I'm going to assume that it's true for a lot of uh, of listeners. Bartman is maybe the most familiar of the three, but we should probably do that sort of short biography that we can of her to situate her in relationship to the other two. And yeah, I feel like over the years, even though I haven't really known very much about Bartman, I have known about that story, her story, uh, some of it real and some of the production around her exactly. that, that, that you've talked about so, or that you write about in the book. So do you want to just give us a bit, because the order of the chapters goes uh, Bartman, Urca, Jean Duval. So what about Bartman? What's her story? How does she end up in France? So it's interesting because Urca is second because it sort of happens second in the French imagination, but Urca actually chronologically mm-hmm. comes first. Before. Yeah. You know, she dies, you know, we don't know when she was born. She dies around 1799. She's a young woman at that time, but she's um, purchased as a pet by the governor of Senegal, brought over, given to a family that helped him secure his position. Um, Madame Beauvau says, you know, we got this gift, even though we didn't ask for it. And so she grows up sort of, Urca grows up sort of indulged and pampered. Um, other French people talk about her as if she's sort of crawling all over the furniture and um, sort of a nuisance and they don't understand why, you know, this French family wants to sort of take care of her. And we only sort of know her through those depictions and in the depictions of her master and mistress in letters they write to other people. Mm-hmm. And so her master, I guess, for lack of a better term, dies and Orca was very close to him. And his wife writes that he really loved Orca and that I myself have grown to care for her too. And she dies very suddenly. So there's sort of the beginnings of conversations about what are we going to do with this child who has sort of been raised out of her race and her gender. Mm-hmm. Um, but she conveniently dies 
and they don't have to sort of worry about that. So she sort of sits there for a really long time until the Duchess sort of resurrects her in this novel. Right. So, and then Bartman is brought over from South Africa. So we have Orca from Senegal. We have Bartman coming from South Africa, comes to Europe as a form of spectacle. Hmm. So she travels around with um, her master's brother for for quite a while. She goes to London. We think she went to Ireland. Hmm. In London, there's a court case about her to find out if she's being held against her will. The court determines she's not. She's uh, sold to an animal trainer and brought to Paris. And so she's sort of a spectacle for a, about a year. Hmm. She dies on... December 31st, 1815, or January 1st, 1816. She's gone by then. Mm. And the third is um, sort of the most complex, I think, of the three. Jeanne Duval, who was the common law wife of the white French poet Charles Baudelaire, Mm -hmm. who we believe was born in France, um, had a white French father, most likely had a white French grandfather as well. So she's mixed race. Uh, She grows up in France. So, you know, she's French. And sort of looking at this um, absurd relationship that she had with Baudelaire over Mm -hmm. decades. One of the things that you discuss in the introduction, Robin, is the fact that, you know, these three women have been written about uh, by other scholars. And certainly there's all this production, you know, before the scholarship, but that you decided to write about the three of them together. Could you talk a little bit about that decision to to bring them together and how you see yourself then as contributing to maybe a broader conversation about their individual stories and forging this territory of thinking about Black women's bodies, sexuality, identity, representations, constructions, productions in the 19th century? Well, you're right. Um, you know, there's been beautiful work on Sarah Bartman. Mm. Um, you know, Crace and Scully wrote a biography and a ghost. And when I read it, I thought, oh my God, I'm in so much trouble because <laughs> they do a really comprehensive um, biography. And I thought, okay, really, what can I add to this? And um, work has been done on Orica and, you know, some work has been done on Duval, although the work I believe on all three of them, there's also been really problematic Mm-hmm. sort of scholarship on the three of them. And what I realized was looking at them that they're dramatically sort of different in their time and in their space and in their circumstances. Bartman is a spectacle. Um, there's no other way around it. Urica is, you know, this sort of degraded aristocrat, but an, an aristocrat nonetheless. And Duval is French. She's born there. She speaks the language. She's lived there her whole life. She's French. And what I kept thinking was, if you put them in conversation with each other, what you see are three dramatically different women who achieve or don't achieve certain requirements of Frenchness, yet are never French. Mm -hmm. They're never French enough, right? Annette Joseph uh, Gabriel um, said, it, you know, like the line is always moving for Frenchness. And that's mm-hmm. sort of how I saw it. There's an illegitimacy to their Frenchness. Orica, who has grown up in the so-called best ways one could be French mm-hmm. as an aristocrat, still doesn't get it. Right. 
right? Duval, who has Frenchness, you know, coursing through her veins, she doesn't get it either. And so it's just, it was a, a realization for me that it's like Blackness divorces you from a possibility of Frenchness. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I want to come back to something you brought up earlier, Robin, in, in relationship to this, this idea of, you know, how French culture and history handles race and, and doesn't. We think about the figure of the Black female body in, you know, histories of colonialism, histories of white nationhood and citizenship and all of these things. Of course, there are stories like this in other national contexts and other colonial and imperial contexts, but there is something very specific about how these Black female bodies operate in the French context because of this universalist script, because of the disavowal of race and the kind of colorblindness. And and also, not just in terms of the subject matter that you're working on, but for you as a scholar, like working on race, I know that that's, you know, just having over the years <laughs> had conversations with people, it's like to be a, a a scholar of France working on race is its own special kind of problem. So yeah, any thoughts on all that? (laughs) No kidding. Um, (laughs) You know, I remember being a graduate student and, you know, for your listeners who are not, who haven't gone through a PhD program, you know, Mm. graduate students are their own kind of stupid. Um, (laughs) You know, I had no idea what I was doing. And so when I got there, when I got to France, I thought, okay, I know what I'm looking for is here, but I don't know how to look for what's here. Because mm-hmm. I can't go to an archive and say, you know, I want to look up Black women, you know, I'll just look under the bees and they'll pop up. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work that way. So it took me a really long time to sort of start a, to try to figure out how to even start looking for these women. Right. And so, you know, the fact that they're coming over water and slavery, the minister of the Marine is sort of in charge with um, lots of things that took me a minute to sort of figure out. And then this idea of sort of where would I find them if they're not going to sort of name them? Well, if you look at ship's logs, it says who they are. So it's really difficult to say, you know, pay no attention to the race that we just wrote down for you in our big book that survives in the archive, you know, race, racial designations are there. Mm. And so to sort of say, yeah, but to me felt really problematic. I thought Mm -hmm. they're labeling them when they get there because that label means something. And so I was just going through anything I could think of. And anytime I saw negresse, mulatresse, anything that designated this was a woman of color or a black woman, I just flagged it. Mm. And that started giving me a language to sort of start to look for. And then I thought, okay, how, how are people thinking about these women? Well, if you look at the minister of the Marine, they're being thought of as bodies that aren't supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, so where might I find people who aren't supposed to be there? So then I went to the police archives Mm -hmm. because I thought, okay, um, surveillance. And that led me to the police de noir files, the black file, the black police files, where 
um, black folks in France are under relatively heavy surveillance, right? And page after page of, mm-hmm. you know, black women who are here and there. And I thought, okay, this doesn't make any sense. If they're not important, you know, why do you have a police force just to deal with them? Right. right? And so that led me to some names I could follow up on. And then I came across a young woman named Henriette Lucille that had 10 pages of material. And um, I'll write about her in my next book. Hmm. Um, And I was really excited to sort of see her, but I would come across these sort of odd pieces of letters or documents where blackness seemed to be much more important than, than people wanted you to think. Mm -hmm. So I came across this letter of um, a concierge who is writing to the police about um, she's actually looking at uh, one of her tenants and she says, you know, well, he's a bad man. And I can tell you he's a bad man because he's living with two women and one mm. of them is even black. Huh. And I thought, okay, to say that these folks don't have some kind of understanding what they're doing here is ridiculous. So people are, you know, average people are very well aware of race functioning mm-hmm. and being able to talk about it. And so when I started looking at images and I started going to these archives, um, particularly in Paris, I had a really hard time. People told me, you know, mm. I'm, I went to Musée Carnivalet and I thought, this is what I'm working on. And they're like, yeah, we can't help you. And I looked behind them and there was a sign on the wall that was like negre. <laughs> and I, I sort of pointed to it and I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, well, we have that, nothing else. And then there was this like clock right on the other side of them that was a big black man with a clock in his belly. I was like, really? Um, and so I was so discouraged and I sort of mm-hmm. wandered through the museum and I came across the Galerie de Palais Royal, which is a beautiful mm-hmm. painting. And there's mm-hmm. a black woman in the corner of it. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to have to look everywhere and I'm going to have to explore everything to try to figure out where these women are popping up. And once I sort of figured out how to do that, they started popping up everywhere. Yeah, I think it's something that, you know, when people read a finished book that brings together these things as well as yours does, that it's it's hard without having the second book that is the making of story. I mean, we right. get glimpses of that in, in your book. But I just want to linger on this issue of sources and archives for a minute to ask, you know, I read your book, Robin, after reading Saidiya Hartman's work, mm. especially and assigning Venus into acts. And then after reading Marisa Fuentes' work, Dispossessed Lives, I guess I want to ask you about how you think about the book in relationship to these questions about what the sources make possible, what they foreclose, the violence that is in these documents, how the voices of the women that you're interested in telling the stories of and looking at stories about, like how they are both there if we look in a certain way or are creative about it. Like, how do you, as a scholar, and in particular, the scholar who wrote this book, how do you kind of think through some of those bigger questions? Well, you know, Marissa's book is, it's fantastic. If you, mm. if for anybody who hasn't read Dispossessed Lives, it should mm-hmm. be your next book that you read. It's so amazing. And it, it helped me get language to the violence that I was seeing in the archives mm-hmm. because she's absolutely correct. The archives are violent spaces. And it wasn't until I started going to port cities where blackness was sort of revealed to me in a different kind of way. And one of the reasons for that is Paris has sent all their archives 
that have to do with the colonies to X, mm. right? So it's sort of removing the colonies from Paris proper um, is such a metaphor for sort of the work that we do. Um, it was when I got to Nantes and I was looking at Black people asking for help because they had been deposited there after the Haitian Revolution. And I was like, why are these Black people getting the same amount of money as these white people? And I was like, what's going on here? Um, that's when I think my education really, truly began. Mm. Um, Eric Sojara, the historian, lived in Nantes and sort of introduced me into the archives in a really particular kind of way. I really think that's where my education in the archives began. But sort of looking at these women and trying to figure out, like, what are people sort of doing with them? What work are they doing? Mm. Right. And so it wasn't a question that they were absent. It was a question of the violence perpetrated on them through the archives themselves. Mm. But there were also these moments where Black women were sort of able to negotiate space, mm -hmm. being relatively unmolested, that I thought, okay, Black bodies are not supposed to be welcome on French soil. So why are they able to simply come in and get their money every month and go about their day? Why does mm -hmm. the racial designation change every month when France is saying racial designation for Black people is really important? Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I followed a young girl named Fauvette who has the best name ever. <laughs> and her designation changed from mulatresse to negresse to simply citizen. And I thought, okay, there's a lot of negotiation this woman can do based on how she's being marked at a given time. And so, you know, finding out that the archives did have something to say but not always what I wanted to hear. I also knew that most of the women, and you can see this in the book, don't speak. And, mm. you know, I was bound and determined to find moments where they did. And so for the most part, I thought I had really failed in this work because they don't talk in ways that I, I hoped I could show. And then I sort of got over myself a little bit and sort of realized <laughs> You know, Bartman says the most wonderful word in the planet. And we find that through the archives written by a white Frenchman. We mm -hmm. hear her say the word no. And that changed everything for me. Hmm. Because one, it reveals that Cuvier was an idiot mm -hmm. um, who couldn't sort of maintain his um, scientific stance, but that he had tried to make her do things. And she wasn't often able to not do them, but that there was a moment where he wants to sort of see her genitalia and she says no. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, if that's the only word I get, it's a perfect word. And with Urika, what we got was her signature. And I thought, you know, I remember talking to Pierre Boulle about it and I, and he says, she could read them right. I was like, I know, right? Like I was so excited to see her signature on a number of documents because she's asking to be emancipated and she signed her own name. Mm -hmm. And if that's her speaking herself into existence and with Duval, lucky for Duval, she outlives Baudelaire. And so she can't be manipulated in the same way because she can push back. It was a question of both knowing that I was going to find only remnants of these folks and understanding that they left enough of themselves for us to find. And that had to be enough in this instance. You know, 
Um, people say, well, it's not a very big book. And I think, well, I wish it had been bigger. But um, do you? Um, I do. I, I wanted to have another chapter, which I just simply couldn't write. Um, I was so traumatized by some of the things that I was sort of reading and seeing on these hmm. three black women that I, I I had to stop. I think the book is the size it's supposed to be for uh, these women's stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to do right by them. And I felt like if I did right by them, then the book was going to be okay. There's so much going on in that discussion of Bartman in the book, Robin. But if we could just sort of pick one thing in this analysis of yours about how her body fits into the production of this set of representations to establish like norms around gender and sexuality and masculinity and femininity and whiteness. You use the term, you describe Sarah Bartman as as a foil. Can you tell us what that means, how you're thinking about her that way? Well, the way she pops up, you know, the sort of cultural production of her, she pops up in, you know, I talk about letters that a famous satirist used to to talk about Napoleon. And she pops up in a, a terrible vaudevillian play where she's used to sort of highlight the stupidity of white French manhood, which I think is interesting that that's how she pops up. But part of it is, is that lots of people can sort of use her. So like in the play, which has a name that I, I, I still sort of shake my head at, you know, the Venus Hottentot or hatred of French women, mm. um, is that she's the antithesis of one. But at the same time, she can never be a French woman. A white French woman uses her body and uses her um, nonsensical speech, which is, you know, white French people's way of saying they don't understand her language, to sort of trap her cousin into marriage because he's so dumb and so unfrench, she wants to marry the antithesis of a French girl. And so he falls in love with an image of Sarah Bartman and his cousin pretends to be that. And so basically he's falling in love with his white cousin who's dressed up as Sarah Bartman. Hmm. And I just always thought it was so interesting that she's useful in sort of tricking this man so this white woman can have you know, the man that she loves. And instead of being sort of angry about it, he realizes um, how stupid it is that he wanted to marry a black woman and then he marries his cousin. And so there's all kinds of things going on in terms of, you know, his cousin says, what do you mean he doesn't want to marry a white French girl? Doesn't he have any national spirit? And I thought, (laughs) what? You know, and, you know, the chorus at the end is, you know, marry whiteness, do not abandon France. And I thought, wow. This woman who is only represented on a piece of paper does all this work Mm. that Sarah Bartman, her pretend voice writing a letter to her cousin talking about how white French women are the most beautiful in the world and that white Frenchmen are the most virile and wonderful (laughs) is doing work. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder to white French men that white French women are the most beautiful in the world. Right. But they need mm-hmm. to be managed properly. You know, as I was reading the book, I was learning and relearning, you know, my different whatever my bookshelf on 19th century France has on it, books on science, books on, mm-hmm. you know, gender and sexuality. And then in the chapter on Urica, you know, revisiting 
the idea of the 19th century as a period of a certain type of cultural consumption. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you bring in this notion of colonial mimicry to, to talk about this, you know, that there is a kind of material cultural history in this chapter and in the story of Urca that we know about other kinds of things, other kinds of spectacles in this period. But I thought that was a really interesting thing about this chapter, the way that it made me rethink what 19th century French cultural consumption looks like. Well, you know, Orc has fascinated me. Like, I, I still can't get over the fact that there was a ham and a biscuit named after her. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, talk about eating, you know, mm-hmm. what you're afraid of. And you see in Bartman and in Orca a sort of wearing of blackness. Mm-hmm. You can take it into your body. You can wear it on your body. Mm-hmm. You know, you can speak as Orca. You can do all of these really troubling things. But you get to do it in your own relative safety. Blackness sort of touches all of these white people. It gives them a moment to think about themselves and their lives. And then they just sort of go on as if it didn't happen. But they're mm-hmm. just slightly more noble. In that chapter on Jean Duval, chapter four of the book, you're, the title of the chapter and then the sort of conceptualization of the chapter, you refer to Duval as a site of memory. Um, And again, you know, when I'm thinking about how this is a book about all the things that it's explicitly about, it's also an opportunity for me to rethink 19th century French history and in a broader sense in all kinds of ways. And then, of course, sites of memory is just like, who can be a modern French historian and escape the power of sites of memory? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) How does Jeanne Duval's story and the production around her allow us to think how do we, how do you, how are you using sight of memory to think about her and how does she help us to maybe think a little bit differently about sight of memory as a, a thing? Well, Duval pops up near the end of France's empire. Mm. You know, slavery is coming to a definitive end in 1848. And so I thought it was sort of interesting to juxtapose France coming to the end of this period in which slavery is how they've sort of live their lives to not doing that and sort of trying to figure out who they were at the end of this empire juxtaposed with these bodies who they've been able to tell themselves don't belong. And so, you know, how does Duval sort of operate in that transitionary period? Baudelaire, we think Baudelaire met uh, Duval in like around 1842, I want to say, Mm -hmm. Um, he sees her in a performance. And depending on who you read, you know, was absolutely captivated by her. Or that she was some kind of vampiric whore who sucked all of his blood out. Just depends on the day. So it's interesting. It was interesting for me, the fact that when Baudelaire dies and Baudelaire's friends try to sort of rehabilitate him, and his writings out of this sort of bohemian life that he's been living, they couldn't do that with Duval in it. Mm. Like she had to be erased from that in order for Baudelaire to sort of be elevated, which is difficult because, you know, some of his most famous poetry is based on her. Mm -hmm. So she needed to sort of be there and not be there at the same time. And so there is active, Um, instances of erasure and forgetting Mm. with Duval that I think we could probably tie to all of them, all three of the women, but is, was most visible to me with Duval because, you know, 
they're together for 30 years. He has her erased from a painting after a fight. Um, and then that was uncovered. So you can still see her in the painting. Mm. And I thought that was such a perfect metaphor for trying to erase blackness in a way at a moment when the French are losing blackness in a way. Mm-hmm. And so that how she becomes sort of a site of memory and also um, a site of erasure. I wanted to ask you, Robin, and you've given me the perfect point of entry for it, uh, you know, about the visual, the status of the visual in this book and the status of the visuals in in your book from the incredibly beautiful cover to the image you just mentioned uh, to the other images. And yeah, anything you want to say about what you thought about, struggled with, considered as you were choosing, I mean, there's obviously always a logistical thing with images, but the way that images work in the book and what you think about, you know, reproducing some and not others that, that, you know, that whole conversation that I'm sure you were having and maybe you're still having with yourself about, about the images. Yeah, there are things, there are things that are not in the book. Um, the, I went back to the um, museum of science and found what I think was a wax reproduction of Bartman's vagina with real pubic hair, um, which was um, not a good day. Mm. And that's not in the book. Um, I'll never share that image Mm. um, because I just, I thought, nope, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody very lovingly put it together. And I thought, "Mm, that's telling. And I thought to myself, I have a picture of so-called, you know, elongated labias and things because I thought it was important, but I tried to be really careful Mm -hmm. about sort of throwing things in for titillation that I wanted to maintain certain levels of dignity if I could. And then if I couldn't to say, this is not about looking at something you think is abnormal. This is about people looking at it thinking that they know something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Cuvier's case, you know, his belief that he sort of understood female, black female sexuality um, when he didn't. There are tons of images out there on Sarah Bartman, and I wanted to try to bring ones that may have been less looked at. Mm-hmm. Orica, not that much survives of her. Um, I got permission from George Little for the one painting mm-hmm. of her Um, But there's not that much out there that survives of like those three women proper. And so picking the images, (sighs) part of picking the images, we're saying these images are popping up all over the place. People are using them. Mm. People are seeing these images. So blackness isn't just going to be shocking or surprising to everyone. Mm-hmm. It was also about sort of the common usage of black bodies with artists and things. I want to ask you about what it means for you and what the experience has been like for you of being an African-American woman who works on race in France, who had a book called Venus Noire come out in 2020 and the legacies of some of these images, these ideas you know, France, but you're also in the United States. I mean, I know that we could now talk about 
that for four hours and I'd be happy to, but any, um, any thoughts about that? I mean, you weren't planning on having this book, you know, come out in the, in the middle of a pandemic or, or at the beginning of a pandemic, I guess, or on the edge of it. Right. Um, and then with the kinds of conversations that people are having about race in the United States, in France, mm-hmm. but also in the Academy, right? All of these things coming together at the same moment that your book appears. What's that all been like for you? Well, oh boy, that's not a hard question at all. <laughs> yeah, this whole conversation, I was just sort of waiting for this. You know, there's so much tied to it. American writers writing about race in France has always been fraught. Mm. There's always been sort of this assumption from lots of French people <laughs> that you're imposing American standards of race up- upon us and it doesn't apply, mm-hmm. which is absurd. France has its own very complicated engagement with race or not complicated engagement with race. Mm-hmm. And part of what I wanted to do is say, whether you're talking about it or not, it's there. If you want to talk about French republicanism, if you want to talk about French you know, universalism, if you want to talk about this so-called French subject, and you want to call it French instead of white Frenchness, you can do that. But that's not, that's what you're doing. And so part of what I was trying to do is say that race in different kinds of ways is sort of is seeped into the foundation of how French people think about themselves from a very early moment. It's why I wanted to talk about Black women on French soil, because it's not just actual bodies on French soil, because they're not that many. But it's how they use those things to sort of shore up their own whiteness that they then sort of erase race from and then call it Frenchness. And part of what I was saying was, um, okay, you can you can say that if you want to. But here are these instances over and over and over again where deter- self-determination is based on saying, at least we're not that. And it happened in three particular moments that um, I uncover in the book, but there are all kinds of littler moments that I didn't write about, right? So part of it is um, going into this, I knew was going to be fraught because I'm an American writing about race. As an African-American writing about race, Mm -hmm. Um, it's even more complicated for lots of reasons. One, you know, I, when I'm in France, people, um, react to me as, um, you know, Josephine, you know, that's their (laughs) marker. Right. And, you know, and I say, I write, you know, I wrote about black expatriates in Paris. Oh yes. The black. And you're like, yes, because there's only one of them, the black. Um, and so I also knew that was going to be, an issue for the French, but it's also complicated for white Americans who write about France Mm -hmm. in terms of my saying, you know, lots of, I, lots of conversations about French national identity are sort of steeped like a tea bag in anti-blackness and race, Mm -hmm. not a really popular stance. Right. And so um, I'm sort of an oddball um, from as many sides as I guess you could, you could probably name. Um, I wanted to write this story. I wanted to tell this story like somebody who didn't grow up 
you know, summering in Paris and didn't grow up, you know, speaking fluent French and, and sort of understanding those kinds of things. I saw something, I saw these women, I saw them pop up and I thought they're not popping up for no reason. And people are talking about them and they're working things out using them. Was I interested in them because they look like me? Of course. Like, of course I was. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also thought it helped us see a, a different kind of 19th century France. There are a zillion more questions that I want to ask you, but I'm, wow, I knew this would be the hardest part of doing this interview, but I'm just going to ask you one more and you kind of hinted at it a little while ago. What are you working on now? I'm looking at Suzanne Simone Baptiste, Hmm. wife of um, Haitian revolutionary fighter Toussaint Louverture. And I'm looking at the kidnapping of the Louverture family, not from the standpoint of Toussaint and the sons, but what that was like for Suzanne. I found her like I found the other women that I study through a, a cultural moment where a newspaper article comes out saying that Suzanne Simone Baptiste had been tortured at the behest of Napoleon. Even though I'm about 92% sure that the torture didn't happen, I started reacting to the torture as if it was real. And I had already spent all this time with um, Bartman and sort of Orica and Jean Duval and not being able to find their bodies. And like Orica's body, I think is under a highway somewhere. Um, They moved her mistress and her master, but they didn't move her. And I was just really traumatized by it. I was traumatized by Cuvier trying to, you know, sexually molest Sarah Bartman. And so when I came across this torture, I I couldn't do it. I just, I couldn't do it. I had to stop. So I'm now working on uh, Suzanne Simone Baptiste for my next project. Robin, I just want to thank you so, so much for writing this book and for speaking with me about it. Thank you so much. And can I please just say that the one thing I wanted was uh, for lots of people to meet these remarkable women. And so thank you for letting me talk about them.